The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to FAPC.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Let us listen now to the so-called longer ending of Mark as recorded in chapter 16, beginning with the ninth verse. Now, after he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went out and told those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After this, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Later, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were sitting at the table, and he upbraided them for their lack of faith and stubbornness because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation the one who believes and is baptized will be saved, but the one who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. By using my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes in their hands. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today's sermon has two parts. <laughs> Part one is a brief rehearsal and examination of the text before us. Part two feels more like an entry in a personal journal, it's a description of, of what life has felt like this past week as this text has bounced around in my head. It's a bit of an unconventional approach for me, but hey, it's been a long year, and this is what, as the evangelicals say, the Spirit has laid on my heart. Part one, textual background. Do you recognize the Jesus in today's passage? I'm not sure that I do. This past week, I scratched my head more than a few times while reading this text. Who is this cranky fellow? When the resurrected Christ shows up in the final verses of Mark's gospel, he berates the disciples for their lack of faith. Now, to be fair, this is not entirely out of character. In seminary, my friends used to call the gospel of Mark the book of the bungling disciples. Christ's subpar followers here take a lot of grief for their failings, including, evidently, 
criticism from the resurrected Jesus. After dressing them down for stubbornness and lack of belief, this Easter Jesus quickly heads into new territory, though. Christ says something here that he says nowhere else in the good book. To avoid the condemnation of God, you've got to believe and get dunked in the river. Baptism, Jesus says, is necessary for salvation. To many, these words sound a lot like John the Baptist, but Jesus, uh, not so much. This pronouncement doesn't square with other voices in the New Testament either. The Apostle Paul is adamant salvation depends not on any external act, including baptism, but on God's grace alone. Okay, so the resurrected Jesus, as described in the long ending of Mark, is a hardliner and something of an outlier when it comes to baptism. But he's edgy in other ways, too. In the final section of Mark, the resurrected Jesus describes the activities baptized believers will take on in his name. And it's one heck of a wild to-do list. According to Jesus, his disciples will cast out demons. They will speak in tongues. They will hold venomous snakes in their hands. They will drink poison. And here's the kicker. They will not be harmed by any of these deadly things. The longer ending of Mark veers into some mighty strange territory. Territory traversed by mountain evangelists who, even today in this country, practice snake handling in worship, an activity deemed illegal in many states. With all this going on, Mark's second conclusion seems to warrant more than a footnote. We, we might want to slap a disclaimer on this part of the Bible. Kids, the, uh, the practices that you read about here, do not try them at home. Do not pick up rattlesnakes. Do not drink poison. Don't try any of this stuff. What kind of loopy Eastertide story is this? Snakes and poison. What are we to make of this passage? End of part one. Part two, living with Mark 16. Earlier this past week, after a day of too many Zoom meetings, I needed to clear my head. I took a walk in Central Park. I have a, a regular loop that runs through the North Meadow curves along the shore of the Harlem Mere, and then winds back through the conservatory garden. This, this past Tuesday, I had one of, the, one of those glorious spring experiences in the park, a 10 out of 10. Everything was blooming. Daffodils, tiny violets, dogwoods and hyacinths, cherry trees, and a magnificent flowering quince. The abundance of nature's display reminded me of something people in Atlanta often say in, in tones of wonder during the height of spring. Stick a broomstick in the ground and it will bloom. It, it felt like that. In addition to plants putting 
on their remarkable displays, people were out pushing babies, walking dogs, holding hands, spreading out blankets in the soft warmth of the spring sun. A group of children, <laughs> kindergartners, I think, crouched along a path, watching as a teacher pointed out a bird hopping around in the underbrush. I walked, masked up, but smiling ear to ear through this unabashed display. The park was bursting with life. It was testifying to the wonders and joys of life, like some proud grandmother eager to show everyone pictures of her beloved progeny. My Zoom-fatigued heart was buoyed by this display. One of my theological touchstones, Karl Barth, once cautioned believers against conflating the blooming of spring flowers with Easter. Even if the lily does not bloom, Bart remarked, Christ is risen. He's right. Still, still I walked and breathed deep of the beauty of the day. I felt like saluting the park for its lavish flowering abundance. I wanted to lift a glass and and toast its joyful chirping inhabitants. Lachaim to life. Strolling along, wrapped in this convivial mood, I wound my way up a path out of the conservatory garden, past a stand of white pines, and back alongside the meadow where the field hospital was erected last April during the worst days of the pandemic here in New York. There in the very spot that that small village of respiratory care tents had been set up, children were now chasing a soccer ball across an open lawn. Watching them, I noticed something. The outline of the places where those tents stood during the worst days of last April is still visible. Like the wounds in the side of the risen Christ, signs of human struggle and suffering are imprinted on the grass. Wincing, I turned away. I didn't want the reminder. I I didn't want anything to pop the bubble of joy I'd found. I turned and walked toward the street, toward where Mount Sinai Hospital sits, an ambulance pulled up, its lights flashing. We are forever being reminded in this life, aren't we, of the proximity of deadly things. This past week, I've been humming Hamilton songs. Amy and I re-watched the taped version of the musical. One of the songs going through my head is Wait For It. It's provided musical accompaniment to, to Mark 16 up here. I hope you've heard the song. In a, in a tender place, Aaron Burr sings Wait For It with great poignancy near the end of the first act. Lin-Manuel Miranda calls it the best song he's ever written. Do you know the lyrics? Death doesn't discriminate 
between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes. And we keep living anyway. We rise and we fall and we break and we make our mistakes. And if there's a reason I'm still alive, when everyone who loves me has died, I'm willing to wait for it. Wait for it. That afternoon, after my walk in the park, I I pick up the phone. It's my daughter calling from Minnesota. She's upset. Dad, people here are really torn up about the death of Dante Wright. I I don't know what to do. Why, Why does it keep happening? I've gone to retreats on race, I've prayed and prayed, I've cried a lot. What is wrong with us? I try to formulate an answer, but it's not time for cultural analysis. We emote. All we can manage are feels. Deadly things surround us. And we acknowledged certain communities, certain skin colors, Certain people face deadly things in disproportionate ways. It defies easy explanation and quick fixes. We get angry, we talk, we study, we pray, we cry a lot. Still, deadly things keep coming. They take, and they take, and they take. The ending of Mark has been rambling around in my head this past week, and the scary thing for me is that looking at the world through its lens is starting to make sense. Easter, Easter we say, is a celebration of life, and and this is true, time true, but Easter is not life beyond death, life without death death, life lived in the absence of deadly things. Central Park's insanely gorgeous blooming is real, and it's also marked, hauntingly touched by signs from the past year. Our Easter faith, wrapped in hope, grounded in the promise that Jesus lives, still acknowledges that our gentle teacher and precious Lord bears for all time the marks of the cross. He carries these scars. The conclusion of the Gospel of Mark gets this. Here, Jesus draws the disciples' attention to all manner of deadly things. Or more accurately, Jesus pushes his followers explicitly toward these deadly things. He calls us to handle them, to engage the snakes and poisons and things that harm. This imagery makes me uncomfortable. Like... Shadows in the meadow grass, flashing lights pulling up in front of the hospital, and surreal videos of violence shot with body cameras. I want to turn away, run away, hide. Don't do it, says Mark. Don't retreat. This is your calling. Easter summons you to step out from behind your fears to to get over your squeamishness and and to be bold in the light cast by the empty tomb. Easter invites us to say, 
I can handle deadly things. It's not going to be easy. It's, it's no picnic grappling with twisty fanged creatures. It's not easy recycling old bottles of poison or, or sorting through deeply ingrained prejudices. It's no simple thing to roll back inch by inch our culture's destructive fascination with more and more lethal guns. It's no walk in the park to heal broken bridges of trust, to, to mend fractured family ties. But, says the ending of Mark, there is no more important work for people of faith. I don't know who wrote this passage, but the end of Mark is gospel. There's courage to be found in this story. It is indisputably an Easter story, a fairly typical post-Good Friday passage, a text in which the resurrected Christ does what we have come to expect. He he talks smack to the monster of death, and he invites us to join in. Hey, you. Yeah, you, the toothy beast with the bottomless appetite. We've been watching you. You sit back and declare that in the end, everything belongs to you, and you make your smug pronouncements and wait for us to crumble. You wait for the snakes and the poisons, the chemotherapies and the pandemics, the racial violence and the mass shootings, the assaults and the abuse, for all the hard and awful things to wear us down. You take and you take and you take. But hear this, death. We are Easter people. We are Easter geeks, Easter obsessed. On Easter, we heed the call of our irascible Messiah. He's had enough with our complacency, and he's had enough with your misery-making activities. On Easter, our Lord is eager, as always, to go to work. And our hearts leap to stand alongside him, to defy you, death, to push back against you, and to do whatever we can to make it possible for all God's children to breathe in the joy of life, to walk in the soft spring sunlight without fear. On Easter, Jesus prods us to handle deadly things, not because it will be easy or because we can expect to be spared in the end, but because our hearts are filled with hope, with a trust deeper than deep, with confidence that in the end, the snakes and the poison don't win, fear doesn't win, death and all its trappings do not finally win. In this messed up world, this will always be the church's wildest, most unreasonable sounding proclamation. Death doesn't win. Instead, victory belongs to the teacher who preached love, who went through hell, and who still bears its scars. It belongs to those who heed his call to approach with courage the hard places in this heartbreaking world, to brave the snakes and the poison, and to pry life from the maw of death. 
This is how Easter wins. It's patterns in the grass on the North Meadow. It's a scarred Messiah calling imperfect disciples to wrestle with serpents and poisons. It's hearts committed to the true glory of spring. Lachaim. Amen. Have courage. Hold fast to what is good. Do not return evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. Love and serve the risen Lord. Amen.